So we have cards that we would like to give to you this morning as we embark on a new series that we want to call Unstoppable. Unstoppable. And um, it's about the book of Acts. So we have these little cards um, that are available for you to take with you. And um, you can just distribute them. Thanks very much. Um, wherever they are. Thanks, Bushley. Just at the back of them, you will find a reading plan. We can go there, Zoe. That we've just given to you so that you can journey with us over the next 10 weeks. Book of Acts is an amazing book, and, and we want to dive into it and, and enjoy it together. But we'd love for you to participate in a practical way. And so you'll find weeks 1 to 9 are all listed this week. One is starting, obviously, tomorrow, and three chapters a week. Really, that's not much. I'm not going to ask you how many of you have never read a book in the Bible. I think there are a few. And so this is your opportunity. If you've never covered a full book of the Bible, this is it. Why don't you join us? Uh, we're going to be doing the book of Acts until Sunday the, what is that? The 13th of November, somewhere there, I don't know which Sunday it'll be. But anyway, we're going to be going through till, till that Sunday and doing nine preachers or ten with this morning included on the book of Acts. All right, so I'm looking forward to that. The book of Acts. I want to ask you then to turn with me to Acts. If you don't know where, book, where Acts is, it's right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then we, we find the book of Acts. All right. Acts chapter 1. Are you all with me? If you've got cards, keep it with you. It's a good reminder to join us sharing, reading together for the next couple of weeks. Book of Acts, first verse of chapter 1 says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. We're going to just do chapter 1 and verse 1 this morning. All right. If we imagine if we did that every week and just did one verse, we'll never end in this book. But um, don't worry, we're not going to take that long. And first of all, just talk about the fact that it is written by someone that says he has already written another book before this one, and he addresses a man by the name of Theophilus. How many of you know who is writing, who is, who is the author of of the book of Acts. Anyone? Luke. All right, great. So Luke refers to the first book that he wrote, which is what? The book of Luke. Well done. Jeez. Somebody I had a sweet, I would have given it to you, Christine. Um, but so he refers to his first book. And Luke simply was unique among all the authors of the Bible in the sense that he, did you know this, he's the only author of all the books in the Bible that is a non-Jew. He's a Gentile. And even in that, God speaks to us and says, listen, I'm, I incorporate all people. I'm not a respecter of person. So Luke is an amazing man, a man who never met Jesus. He was not one of the disciples of Jesus. Uh-huh. But he wrote much about Jesus and obviously about the first church. He was not an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. He just sat with people that were with Jesus and got all the recording or all the reports from them. He was a doctor by profession. All right? And Paul refers to him in Colossians 4 verse 14 as the beloved physician. 
So there's a close relationship between Paul and Luke. And Luke became a traveling partner with Paul. So where Paul traveled, the, the apostle Paul in the book of Acts, and the one who wrote so much about the New Testament and, and many of the letters, Paul, Luke was his companion. And it seems like Luke was with him right till the very end of his life. Luke died at the age of about 84, by the way. It's amazing that God uses a doctor who was very observant, um, analytical, and careful in writing his gospel in the book of Acts. Now, it's very interesting also to note that if you take all the chapters of, of the book of Luke, and you take all the chapters of the book of Acts, it seems like Luke wrote more in terms of words than any other author in the New Testament. Although Paul wrote more letters, in terms of content, it seems like Luke contributed more than any other author. And he was a physician. He was a non-Jew. And he could very, very clearly, because he had an analytical mind, it seemed, write down and, and record the, the events of Jesus and the events of the church. And Amazing also just that God uses a doctor to record the supernatural. How's that? A doctor would, in his own mind possibly, be able to reason away the supernatural as a physician. But yet God used him in an incredible way. He wrote about the virgin birth. He, he wrote about all the, many of the miracles of Jesus and the signs and wonders in the book of Acts. It came from his pen as a doctor. So we've seen already that he wrote two volumes. One is Luke. No one is Acts. And he wrote them, both of these books you'll find in Luke as well. He also says, this is for you, Theophilus. If you actually, if you want to quickly just turn there with me, um, how he writes this. In Luke chapter 1, listen to his language, all right? Because they reckon Theophilus, by the way, the name Theophilus means God-friendly. Theophilus. Theos is God, Philos is friend. And we often find the word phileo, but anyway, that's another thing to go into. But he writes to Theophilus, a man who's, who seems to be a lawyer, and it, and it, and it seems from certain commentaries and, and historians that, that Theophilus could have been the lawyer that tried to defend Paul's case in Rome when he was accused of this newfound religion, and they wanted to kill him. So these two books could have been stories that, that, that Luke wrote to defend Christianity and to defend Paul even. Quite interesting. Now listen to Luke chapter 1, because this, in a sense, also kind of gives evidence that he was writing to a, to a lawyer. Listen to his language. Verse 1, Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. <laughs> A little bit of legal language, that isn't it? It's not just, hey, Theophilus, I was sitting there the other day and I thought I'll write you a letter just to explain a couple of things about this Christ. No, no, no. It's a bit different, isn't it? So this is the context, or this is the background to the book of Acts that, um, and, and the life of Luke and who he wrote to. There's much more to say about it, but we're not going to do that. 
Just a little bit more about the book of Acts then. All of these events in the book of Acts, if you have read through it, had started uh, when the Holy Spirit arrived on the scene. And you'll see in Acts chapter 2, one moment after a man called Peter preached the message, 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ. 3,000. One moment. The rest of this book is all historical evidence of God working through His people. And it's just incredible stories. Now, the one thing about um, the book of Acts is that when we found that on the first moment where they preached the gospel and Holy Spirit came down and filled them with power to enable them to be witnesses, these 3,000 people got saved, but it didn't stop there. They said about 70 years later, about AD 100, after the 3,000 that got saved, they reckoned there were about 25,000 followers of Christ about 70 years later. Then another 150 years later, by... AD 250, they reckon there were over 30 million followers of Christ in the known world then. So in 250 years, it grew from 25,000 to 30 million people committed their lives to Christ. And so what happened in Acts is quite significant. How could the church, would be the question that we were asked, grow at such an incredible rate, especially under persecution? Because we know that the Roman Empire persecuted the church heavily. Is it possibly? Because they had something built into their system through the teaching of Jesus that compelled them towards living out these lives. Shall I say that again? Do you think that maybe the church grew in such an incredible way because of what Jesus taught them in the Gospels, they started living out the lifestyle that He introduced to them. Holy Spirit came and filled them with power to enable them to live out the lifestyle that Jesus had expected of them. And that lifestyle so impressed people that they saw there was something different in their lives that they wanted too. Was it that they saw that their obligation to respond to Christ and His final command as a non-negotiable in their lives? And what was the last command of Jesus? We read that in Matthew 28 where He says, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them all things that I have taught you and help them to observe that. And so Jesus gave this final command, but then the wonderful thing with His command was, I will be with you as you do this. Lo and behold, I will never leave you, He promises in Matthew 28 verse 20. So we all want this promise of, God, you'll stay with me. But Jesus said, you know what? I want you to go and reach people. So it seems like as persecution broke out and the, 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 the followers of Christ were scattered across the world, known at that time, that they took the gospel with them and they, they responded in obedience to what Jesus had called them to go and be, and that was to be His witnesses. And that possibly led to that incredible growth. Let's just look at a modern-day example of this. don't know how many of you have ever just read up on what is happening in China. I'm not talking politically. I'm talking spiritually. Facts of China and, and the growth of, of Christianity 
in the country of China is as follows. In 1980, they reckon of, uh, that there were approximately 3 million Christians, followers of Christ, in the country. It was obviously controlled before that through various political beliefs, and, and there was major persecution. 1980, what is that? 37 years ago, there were only 3 million believers in China. By, nine, by 2010, that number has estimated to about 58 million already. So some, I did a bit of research on it, some would well, kind of uh, be between 55 and, and 70 million, an estimation, because nobody goes and, and signs up in China and says, I'm a Christian, I'll you know, give my name. It's an estimated growth that they have followed, and they reckon that the average percentage growth of believers per year in China is about 7%. Now, you work that into the billions that there are, then you know that's a considerable amount. They estimate that by the year 2025, which is eight years from now, that China will have the most followers of Christ in the world per country. In terms of just the, the growth that they've been monitoring over the years. Why is that happening? And we can't come up with all the clear answers. But is it related to possibly the fact that there's, there's persecution? We've seen it throughout history that when the church is persecuted, there's incredible growth that happens. Not just numerically, but also intrinsically. When people grow closer to God, there's an incredible commitment. I've read stories of people going to China. I have been to China myself for the gospel, not for business and praise God, if you go for business, that's fine. But just to be able to go with a different lens to see what is happening in China. And, and, and the incredible commitment of Christians in that country is, for one, related to the fact that they are persecuted. They get upset with you if you arrive. And, and, and I'm talking about the underground church. I'm not talking about the state church because there's a church that is controlled that should submit or should register with the government the state church, and they, they have spies or police that come into their meetings, and, and they control, in a sense, what happens through that. But then there's the underground or the unknown church that meets at, at, at leisure, and is how they want to, and they preach the full gospel. Those people, if they have visitors come to preach at them, they, and they preach for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, they're like, well, that was great. That's your intro, probably, you know. They prepare to come for hours. I mean, how many stories have we not heard of how people share the Bible through tearing out pages of the Bible and they share it amongst each other? And so one of the things that we do notice that Christianity grows through persecution is a fact. But could it also be that, that people start to see that to authentically serve God means that I lay down my life and that I'm not considering myself above Him, that as we could almost interpret that song earlier, that you'll never let me down, hey God? You're here for me, huh? You run around just to meet my needs. That the true, authentic follower of Christ understands that it's not about him, but it's about Christ. That is it possible that once we understand that, that, that the name of Christ is spread? Could it also be that we realize that we're not here to just live our own lives around ourselves, but we actually here for him, and, and that my call is to obey him in every area of my life? Could it be that? So when we want to look at the book of Acts, 
we have to, folk, look a little bit wider than the book of Acts and not just consider what actually took place in those few chapters and in those years that were recorded through the 28 chapters of Acts. We've got to look beyond that and actually before to, act, to try to ascertain what led people to this kind of lifestyle. Because if you look at the lifestyle of the people in the book of Acts, nothing has actually changed. There are some things that are very descriptive in terms of this is what happened, and it's not necessarily prescriptive for us today. This is how we ought to do it, exactly the same. Because if it did, then you know, there would be some harsh things happening. So some people died when they kept money from God. They'd come into a meeting and, and withhold some money that they were supposed to give to God. They died. If we become quite um, strict on that, maybe some of us would have been gone long ago already, isn't it? The point is this. There are some things that are actually quite clear for us that this is the lifestyle that God has called us to. But the thing that enabled them to live this lifestyle is what I want to take us to in the first book. The first book of Luke. Luke wrote the second book. But the first book of Luke, he takes us to a number of examples of what it means to actually be a follower of Christ. And I want to just give you six quickly this morning. And just say to you, the book of Acts and everything that we see in the book of Acts and, and, the, and the way God used people in the book of Acts is most probably related to how Jesus taught His disciples to live their lives. And then once Holy Spirit came and empowered them, they, they could kind of apply what was taught to them when Jesus was around. So can I just remind you, many of these you would have noticed before, but I just want to remind you again of some of these fundamentals that Jesus taught us that possibly could lead to the same fruit today. Are you ready for this? Okay? So just six examples that, that may have served to prepare the disciples for the radical lifestyles we see in Acts. All right? The first one is from Luke chapter 2. I want to talk about the motivation in following Jesus. We first, we see in this, this portion... And some of these I would not be able to read through because we just have not enough time. But Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 to 52 talks about this amazing story where Jesus was 12 years old. By the way, it's the only gospel that, that really talks about this. Luke does. Uh, they had to go to, um, to Jerusalem as was the custom for the Jews. And Jesus went with his parents. They went along to the city of Jerusalem, and during that time, they trekked a day, they spent a day, they trekked back. And then, as they were coming back, probably a day's journey already, they noticed that Jesus wasn't with them. And there's various reasons why that could have happened. But here we find, for the first time, Jesus' words recorded in the Bible. Right? He had been a baby, he had been growing now, now he's 12 years old. And so we find here that eventually when Joseph and Mary returns, they find Jesus in the temple. And um, 
It says in verse 48, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? It's like very indignant. <laughs> Come on. You know, we've, we, we thought you were with us. And um, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress, like most of us would be saying if our children weren't with us and they were like a few days out of sight. And he, Jesus, said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in statute, stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, in the simple sentence here, he just implies something amazing. He says, I'm firstly under the authority of my God in heaven because he is my father and I recognize you because it says here he went with them and he was submissive. He did not disregard and rebel against his earthly parents, but he firstly recognized what it means to follow God. He says, my first priority, mom, dad, 12 years old, is God the Father. And as much as I respect you, it says that he did, I need to firstly follow God. So I want to say to you that the motivation in following Jesus, and this is the lifestyle that Jesus then started living, because in various places we find that with his disciples, they weren't around. He was 12, right? Only when he was about 30, then they started coming along with him. But the lifestyle that he introduces here is the lifestyle that he lived amongst the people later on when he started preaching. Of saying, this is the motivation when I follow my God. It is not what can I get out of this, it's what he expects of me. And if I need to be in the temple, for instance, that Jesus did at the age of 12, that is it. I will be with my Father. I will follow what my Father says. If I'm involved in a situation here on earth, and this is what the world says, this is the, the, the expectations there are for me as a, as a person, as a child of God, or as a, just an individual, and the world says, do this. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is what it means to follow God. The motivation for me to follow God is to honor Him all the time. And I will live like that. Could it be that this is the lifestyle that the disciples started living? That when they got into this mode of the book of Acts, that they lived with that kind of motivation. Let's look at another one, Luke chapter 5. Jesus now speaks to disciples. It's like 18 years later, he's now starting to preach. And um, he, he appears... It says in chapter 5 and 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked, he, he, um, he asked him to put out a little from the land, just go into a little bit further from the land. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And like Peter's like, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Uh, but at your word, I will, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and the nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in other, uh, in other boats to come and help them. And they, they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. 
O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of the Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their nets, their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Just say to you something about the persuasion of following Jesus. The disciples saw him and were astonished at his power and might. It left them with an overwhelming conviction and persuasion that he was the Son of God. Their immediate response was to lay everything aside and follow Jesus. They saw it. They were convinced. They were persuaded that this is the Son of God. And they put everything aside, laid all aside, and, and followed him. It was not at all to order. I asked too much to, uh, to follow him. And so this is it. The persuasion in following Jesus needs to come from the realization of who he is. And I, I think, and this is my suggestion, that the disciples, as they grew in knowing who Christ is, they became persuaded that this is the Son of God. That when he asked of them to go into the world, when he, he scattered them and said, go and be one witnesses, they were willing to go and be that. Most of them, if not all, were martyred for their faith. So what led them to what we see in the book of Acts is the persuasion that this is the Son of God. And that's the same persuasion that you and I need to have. We need to have our own personal conviction of who Christ is. It's not something that you kind of just borrow from someone for a while. It's not like a car that you borrow for, a, for an afternoon or, or, or whatever it is that we borrow from each other. It is something that you and I each need to have. We cannot become dependent upon somebody else's faith. Because the faith that you and I ought to live needs to result in a sacrificial lifestyle. And if we don't have that persuasion, that conviction ourselves, we cannot sacrifice. We will not. Because we don't seem this Christ. That's what we need to encourage one another with. That's why Sundays are so important. That's why your own study of who Christ is is so important. You need to come, my friend, to your own personal persuasion of who He is so that the lifestyle required will be done from the heart, not from here. Sometimes we do it, try to do it from here. And it's a mess. Because my mind says, that's too much. No, 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 that's going too far. Many people often say to you, no, 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 don't become too serious about God. Because your mind would tell you, no, no, man, you can, you don't need to. But your heart says, I want to give. I want to give. I want to give. It seems like the disciples lived at such a place of giving. The third one is about the marks of following Jesus. Luke 8, where it really just said, listen, my family are not just those that are family through flesh and blood. My family members, and you can go read it in Luke 8, are those who follow God, who obey Him, who give their lives to Him. That's the true mark. The next one that we find in, in Luke 9, as we just hasten through this, is there's a purpose in following Jesus. And I, I want to read this one to you. There's six, but we're not going to work through all six of them. I'm going to leave it for you to read through. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Lead this with me. Jesus saying, now listen, we are reading this with the lenses of trying to see how come 
in the book of Acts, we find such radical lifestyles that led to this exponential growth of followers of Christ that changed the world that you and I still benefit from today. Could it be that Luke 9, verse 23 to 27, was applied in the lives? Jesus speaking, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Talking to his disciples, and they did. Now this is it. Jesus spells it out very clear. What is implied in following him? And it simply is a complete, a complete denial of self. And total surrender to him. A complete. He did not fool around what was expected in being a follower of Christ. He expected a total devotion to him. He still requires this today. The Greek word here for deny, where he says to let him deny himself, is the word aneomai. Aneomai means this, to reject oneself. We know about rejecting people. But this context, Jesus is using this word aneomai to say, reject yourself when it comes to following me. It's like, but it's all about me. Thank you that you never let me down. And if you do let me down, where were you? But Jesus says here, aneomai yourself. Reject yourself. It carries with it the idea of rejecting anything in us that contradicts the life that Christ wants us to live. Anything in us that contradicts the life that Jesus calls us to live. Is it possible that the disciples grabbed hold of that and the followers of Christ subsequently? Deny myself. I'm going to deny myself so that you will be on it. To take up our cross, as Jesus says it here, is to be willing to let all that is in us that should die be put to death. Because the cross means death. Uh-huh. You know that. So when I take up my cross, I'm actually saying, Jesus, take up your cross daily. It's like whatever needs to die in you, let it be put to death. Anything that you know in Christ shouldn't be alive. Because it's Christ that should be alive in me, not me. It's like all my selfishness and my arrogance and, and my temper and, and my issues. Lord, I want it to die in me so that you can live in me. That's what it seems. The life that the early disciples started living looked like. In Luke chapter 12, well, there's the implications of following Jesus. That it even leads to the discord amongst people. Because they're... There's division. Jesus said, I'll bring division. Because some will serve me, some won't. Even in your family, there will be division amongst you. But that's the reality of what it means to follow me. We also see lastly in Luke chapter 14 that there's a real cost in following Jesus. Where he says, listen, whoever's not willing to hate his own family is not willing to follow me. Jesus is not saying, hate your wife, hate your children. He's saying, love me more than what you love them. That's what the cost of following Jesus implies. 
Is it possible that this is the way that the early disciples lived? And hence we see the fruit of that in the book of Acts. This is the background, my friend, to the book of Acts. This is just some of the things that Jesus taught that most possibly, most probably led to the lifestyle that we find these disciples lived. This is the kind of philosophy that turned ordinary people into radical followers of Christ. Jesus taught them certain things. The response was radical lifestyles unto Christ. His disciples lived like that. Paul, many others did. They lived like that. And as we, as we look at the book of Acts over the next nine weeks, I want us to know that God wants to perform and work through us today in a similar way. Acts has not stopped. What God did there simply needs to carry on. And it carries on. It continues through you and me. But it depends on how we live our lives. Just simply, if I could use this balloon as an illustration. We, um, we find that, that often in life, we want to live for Christ. We get, to un- we get to understand what it means, or just, you know, the realities of, of being a follower of Christ. But we all so often try to do it strength. And if I let go of this, you know what will happen. Drop to the ground. And so what we try to do with our lives is we try to keep it afloat through all sorts of activity. And um, we try to even go to church and say, maybe keep me afloat. That'll help me to manage in life. I've got to just keep my eye on this all the time because you never know when this thing will drop and I will lose control of my life. I try all sorts of ways. I try to meditate. I try to be positive. I try to read the Bible. I try this. I try that. I try to be a good person. I try not to lie. I try not to steal. I try to be good. I try to impress I try, to, I try to love. I try to be a good man. I try to be a good husband. I try to love my husband. I try to love my wife in various ways. And it's just so, so incredibly taxing. I've got to keep an eye on this the whole time as I'm doing now with this silly balloon. It's not possible to even look at you because I may lose control of it. So that's the point. Somebody else comes in and just tries to help me and messes it up. Thank you, Charles. That's what we often try to do in life. God calls us. We read in the book of Acts. We see the realities of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And Oh, let me. But I can't. I just can't. I've got to let something in me take place. That something through me can happen. And that in me are two things. Simply, two things. It's the Word of God that takes residence in my heart, not in my mind, and it's the Spirit of God that comes and fills me. We see that clearly. That's how the disciples lived their lives. They were taught. They were shown the way. They became known as people of the way. 
What way? The way that we find simply just described a bit here in, in the book of Luke. They started to apply that. And as they entered into the phase where Jesus said, I'm going now, but I'll not leave you alone. Holy Spirit came and filled them with power and the ability to live that life. And I didn't have the ability to bring a, a, um, a gas bottle here to inflate it here, but it has been inflated with helium. And you can see that it just wants to rise. It doesn't want to drop. And there's, if I can use this simply, as a picture of the life in us. That God comes and fills us. And what we find in the book of Luke, we see just some of these incredible truths that Jesus taught that were offensive. Says to them, hate your wife and your, and your children. Like, oh, what do you dare say that to me? But if we understand that it's in the light of, I want you to love me more than what you love others, then you understand what it means to choose me above everybody else. And so when we allow the truth of God and His Scripture and the Word and the value of the teachings that Jesus taught to infill us, and to inflate our lives, and, and we allow the Holy Spirit to come to fill us, there's life. There's life. It's a clear difference. Check where that one is. See where this one is. That just wants to go. This one wants to go. And simply is, that's the lifestyle that Jesus has called you and I to live. And when we look at the book of Acts, we're going to look at it from the premise of how do we go now, God? You, you've, you've, you've got us here on earth for a reason, to obey you, to be filled with your truth and your principles and, and your spirit, to go, to be here in Bulawayo and to be those that, wow, there's life in this. There's something different in this. You can see it, can you not? That's a great moment, just to nod, please. But seriously, folk, this is the life that Jesus calls us to live. And this becomes unstoppable. Not in an arrogant way where we say, hey, watch me, I'll show you what. But the life of God, the value of the Word in us, makes us unstoppable. I want to close this morning by just praying with you. I want to pray that for any of us that recognize that I've kind of just become tired to try to keep my life going and keep things intact and try to stay afloat and do all the right things or try to do all the right things, but it's just not, it's just not working. You need Christ in your life because Christ brings life. That brings real life, abundant life to us. And if you, my friend, have never understood that Jesus loves you, and there's only one way to live, and that's to live for Him. This morning, I want to pray for you and pray with you that your heart will be soft and say, Jesus, I recognize that I need you in my life. And then I want to pray for all of us that recognize that even as we, as we give our lives to Christ, we so often still try to do it in our own strength. We, we, we disregard Holy Spirit. We ignore Him. We try to do it in our own flesh, in our own strength. And it's just such a tedious task. We become so tired, and we always want to give up. So let's pray together. Firstly, Father, I want to pray for anybody here this morning that, that recognizes in their heart that, that Jesus is not King of their lives.
that they need to submit themselves to your Lordship. But God, that maybe this morning they understand again, and maybe for the first time they realize that you love them and that you came to die for our sins and that our life on our own is even without the little bit of air that I blew into that balloon, that there's nothing in us. I, I, I have no life in me. I'm just full of sin. And I pray for your spirit to come and to convict people and help them to see your love, that you call us closer to you. You never reject us. And I also want to pray secondly, Father, for anybody here this morning that have been following you for a while, for many years. Lord God, we've done it so often out of our own strength. This morning, we recognize that we need you. We need you, Jesus. And I pray for people this morning, Lord God, to, to open up their hearts to Holy Spirit. And say, Holy Spirit, won't you blow into my life? Lord, as we also read Scripture, I, I want to pray, Father, that as we study them together, that we will allow these things to take root in our lives so that we will be as people of the way, not by virtue of us coming to a meeting on a Sunday, but by how we live our lives every other day of the week, and that we will be like this balloon, Lord God, full with the air and the life of God, that it just wants to rise. It wants to be taken to places. It wants to be at the disposal of God, God's use. So, Father, I pray for that. Just as we are quiet in our hearts, you just apply whatever it is that's relevant to you right now, would you? Just quietness, close your eyes, forget about the people around you. Just what's relevant to you out of what we shared. Because this is the life that Jesus introduced to us in his gospel. This is what Luke helped us to see, that Jesus calls us to such a life of complete abandonment to him, where his life is blown into our system. So, Father, I pray for each one of us, wherever we may be in our walk with you, we'll apply what we read, you teach us, so that the life that you want us to live would become more possible. Not in our own strength, but by the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit upon us. God, I pray for that in Jesus' name.